Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, as always, happy to be here with you. Um, And today, uh, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Frank Summers to speak with us about his most recent publication titled The Psychoanalytic Vision, The Experiencing Subject, Transcendence, and the Therapeutic Process, published by Rutledge in 2013. Dr. Summers was the past president of the Division of Psychoanalysis, the Division 39 of the APA, and he's also a professor of clinical psychiatry and the behavioral sciences at Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. He's a supervising and training analyst at both the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis and the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis. He's won uh, several local and national awards for his contributions to the field at large, and particularly has won awards for his work as an educator. Um, One award from the IFPE, another from the Donald Kaplan Award for Teaching Excellence at the Chicago Center, the Joan Fleming Award for Teaching Excellence at the Chicago Institute. Um, Dr. Summers is uh, also an associate editor of Psychoanalytic Dialogues and a member of the editorial board of Psychoanalytic Psychology. He's published many articles and book chapters, um, is really active, um, throughout the field. You can always catch him at a conference somewhere, I think. Um, he's published four books, including the one we'll be speaking um, about with him today. Uh, one is a textbook, a best-selling text called Object Relations Theories, a Comprehensive Text. But he's also published two monographs in which he develops his own model and way of thinking. One is called Transcending the Self, an Object Relations Model of Psychoanalytic Therapy and Self-Creation. And I think just in that title, you can hear that he's uh, influenced by more than uh, one school of thought. And um, the uh, other book that he's published is called Psychoanalytic Therapy and the Art of the Possible. He um, is, uh, while he does reside in Chicago, that does not by any means mean that he is a cohesion. So we have to get rid of that um, that bias. At least I certainly had that bias. But when I read his book, I knew he was not a cohesion. Um, and <laughs> he works uh, as a private practice, um, you know, as, uh, as an analyst in Chicago as well. Um, and um, let's move on to the interview, uh, which promises to educate us um, about his understanding of a transformation that's taking place within psychoanalysis where the focus is on the experiencing subject, less so on uh, overriding uh, and deductive um, theories, but rather on the experience, the experience of the patient um, in the room. And this is a book also just to note, if you're not an analyst, there's several chapters that focus specifically on things to do with culture and technology. Um, which are of great interest for sociologists, anthropologists, philosophers um, as well. So uh, without further ado, let's move on to the interview with Dr. Frank Summers. Hi, and uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Dr. Frank Summers is here with us today to discuss his book, The Psychoanalytic Vision. Welcome. Um, shall I call you Frank, Dr. Summers? What, what's call me Frank, that's okay. fine. Okay. As informal as possible. Okay. And I want to say thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a, it's a real, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, so I wanted to um, begin um, with just a couple of uh, words that resonate and um, uh, repeat themselves uh, in this book. Um, the words are romanticism, transcendence, futurity, protention, reification, and experience, all topics taken up with great seriousness by you. Topics that, to my mind, are neither the usual province nor common parlance of psychoanalysis. So um, welcome, Dr. Summers. Um, And our first question that we ask every uh, author here at New Books in Psychoanalysis is, 
what prompted you to write this book. So um, there we go. Well, after my third book, I really thought I was not going to write another book. And I really didn't have an idea in mind for a book. Um, But as I was writing and exploring my ideas, I realized that there were underlying assumptions I had and thoughts I had about the analytic process that were perhaps different from what we are accustomed to seeing, uh, even in the most contemporary of relational ideas. And in fact, I think from my philosophical background, I always felt like a lot of what I was doing was introducing philosophical concepts to clarify analytic thinking. Throughout my career, I've always felt this tension between analytic process, the clinical process, and the way things were conceptualized. And between that and my ideas about therapeutic change, I realized I had uh, a book forming in my mind that would, in a sense, in a very real sense, be a culmination of really years and years of thinking, not as much writing, but of thinking about what is the basis for analytic knowledge, analytic clinical process, and uh, the way analysis works. And the words you brought out all are very central to that. Yes, indeed. Um, I, you begin the book with um, a critique of the use of uh, theory deductively. Yeah, um, and um, I have a quote here from you. Uh, let's see. Um, the experiencing subject has become the focal point of psychoanalytic discourse and practice, often pushing theory into the background. So I have a question for you. As American culture has become more interested in quantification, which is something that the book prominently takes up, how do you make sense of the field of psychoanalysis is turning away from the use of theory deductively, which is also uh, not quite quantification, but it, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me first of all let me clarify here. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say I see psychoanalysis moving toward the experiencing subject and away from theory, I'm talking about certain strands that I see emerging from every theory. Um, certainly from uh, certain relational aspects, object relational, self-psychology, but that are not necessarily the dominant trends in any of those theories. There is also a tendency in all those theories to use theory deductively. And what I am seeing here is that, in, in my view of the history of psychoanalytic ideas, that Theory has historically been used deductively, and I think the reason is for what you're saying, because using theory deductively, I think, emanates from scientism. By scientism, I mean the tendency to view natural science as the only kind of valid knowledge, and therefore psychoanalysis has tried to mimic in many ways natural science. And even those most contemporary of theories, like relational and object relational theories, that claim to be moving away from uh, a natural science model, and of course they are in many ways, have remnants and very important remnants in their conceptualizations of the way of, of, of natural science and the way natural science works. And of course in natural science what one does is one looks for laws, covering laws, from which one deduces certain phenomena. And what I see in the history of psychoanalysis is that that is the way certainly a lot of classical people, and by classical I mean people who use theory in this way, use their theories as, as though they are established bodies of knowledge, and the patient becomes an instance of the theory. And what I see in this new movement, which I see that cuts across theories, yeah. is a tendency to say what matters is the way the patient experiences things. And, of course, clinically, we would all say that. What analysts would disagree with saying, of course, it's the patient's experience. But, in fact, the, what happens is the, the analyst has the theory in mind, and as soon as the patient's experience in any way resembles or fits that theory, then the theory comes into play, and that is how the patient's experience is understood. And I think that is a fundamental error that I can see it cuts across every type of analytic model. And what I am seeing is the emergence of alternatives 
in which in everyone, even in, in self-psychology, even in Kleinian thought and ego psychology, of people who are say, seeing that really what has to be the origin and ultimate arbiter of analytic thinking is the patient's experience. Now, I have to add, I have been misunderstood by some people as therefore saying we have to operate atheoretically. And of course, such a thing is not possible. You can't operate atheoretically. As soon as you see a patient, you have a theory, okay? Everything we do is theoretically laden. It's the difference between theoretical imposition, which I see in many, and still the dominant uh, view of, of many analysts, have your theory and then apply it to the individual, versus the heuristic use of theory. In the heuristic use of theory, you engage the patient's experience, and theories are tools that helps one elucidate that experience, and they are not to be presupposed and therefore imposed on the patient. Now, you're going to say, well, you've got to use theory. You see, and this is where what analysts do to this day. One hears that from analysts. They say, well, you have to have theory. Everybody has theory, and they do that to justify the imposition of theory on the patient's experience. Yes, you have to have theory, but that does not justify a theoretical imposition. There's the heuristic use of theory in which one engages experience and uses theory to illuminate and and, uh, elucidate that experience. And if it doesn't, the theory is not valuable. It's not to be used. Um, I've had good fortune to have had good training from many teachers, and one of them was Brutal Bettelheim, despite all his flaws. He used to say, theories are tools, okay? And uh, any tool, if used for the proper purpose, is going to be effective. But if you use the wrong tool, okay, you damage whatever it is you're trying to fix rather than repair it, and you can hurt a lot, you can do a lot of damage and hurt yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking about the way in which um, theory often just um, helps the analysts feel uh, comfortable in um, feeling that we know something. And um, when, when not knowing becomes uh, highly intolerable, which, um, you know, depending on the patient, uh, not knowing can be uh, an, excruciating, uh, an excruciating experience. So... I think we all know the, the defensive use of theory to um, make ourselves feel more comfortable. Well, and I th- yeah, and I would say that I think that is one of the major motivations for theoretical imposition. Mm-hmm. If one approaches a patient with theory in mind, then one feels more comfortable, like you already have a way of structuring the experience. Right. But what that does is run the very real risk of obliterating or at minimum distorting the patient's experience in order to make it fit with that theory. And I have in my first chapter, as you know, as you mentioned, uh, a critique of that kind of use of theory, and I can give you example after example from every theoretical persuasion, from ego psychologists who know there's an Oedipal complex and will find it, whether it's the best way to understand the, the experience or not, uh, from self-psychologists, who as soon as a patient has a reaction, let's say to a vacation or a separation, will say, oh, it's an idealizing transference, which it may very well not be, uh, from Kleinian thought, of course, which, you know, as soon as there's any indication of aggression, will make that the central focus. And so from every theoretical persuasion, one sees that kind of what I would consider to be an error, a fear of engaging the experience for what it is. And that means engaging the unknown. You really don't know what someone's experience is until you really engage it, and even then you might not know. But you certainly are going to um, make it more difficult for you to know if you have a ready-made theory that you're going to impose on it. And I think the experience of uncertainty, the experience of not knowing, is very difficult for many um, professional clinicians, not just analysts, but non-analysts as well, because from one's training, one feels one is expected to know, and the patient expects you to know. And that is a kind of collusion, okay, where it's very easy for patients and analysts to feel they know in order to avoid the very difficult experience that we do not know and we have to let the experience evolve, emerge, engage, and, and, and sustain that experience. And the patient needs to sustain it. I would add that, too. Part of the clinical process 
is the patient being able to sustain the experience of uncertainty and not knowing, and that has to be held by the analyst. And if the analyst can't tolerate it, then you really have the blind leading the blind. <laughs> or at least, or at least uh, some kind of a, of a serious um, impasse. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about um, the future in, mm-hmm. and transcendence, and mm-hmm. I really haven't heard the word transcendence in psychoanalysis um, uh, in forever. And I have a quote from you um, about the future and the way in which you think about the future playing a role in the clinical encounter, in, inside, inside of the analyst and attempting to foment um, uh, the never-before experience, as Phyllis Meta would say, who is a modern analyst. I think it's the same kind of idea. It's working with the never-before experience, the something that the patient may be. Um, uh, your quote, a quote I pulled um, from the book is, what does not move forward into the future perfect becomes the soil for pathological growth. And in your writing about the patient, who the patient may be, um, you suggest that this requires, quote, an inference beyond understanding who the patient now is. There's a, a real optimism, actually, that you convey in this book, which um, by pointing to the future um, almost makes it... Uh, Unfamiliar. I mean, if you think about psychoanalysis, it's not exactly an optimistic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, yes, I, yes. I, I, recall, I recall, you know, Andre Green uh, castigating a, a room full of American analysts who said they wanted to help the patient say more, and he said, "We don't help the patient." <laughs> so, um, yeah. so can you talk to us about your how the how the future comes to play? Yeah, I can talk about it for the next several hours, actually. I think it's such an important concept. Um, Yes, you see, this again comes from the philosophical underpinning that I think is so important in psychoanalysis. Um, You know, psychoanalysis is about subjective experience of self and other, right? Well, the people who have understood that experience best, of course, in my view, are phenomenological philosophers, starting with Edmund Husserl, uh, contributions made by Heidegger um, and uh, Arthur Meloponti, Sartre. And one of the things that they indicate, that they point to and have elucidated in the structure of human experience, is that the meaning of all human experience always has to do with the future. That is, um, when we are talking here now together, you're trying to understand what the, in the world I am talking about. I'm trying to get something across to you that you understand. That is a project, okay? That we are hoping to fulfill that project. The success of this interview is going to be based on how well both of us fulfill that project. Well, that's how human life is. It's organized by projects, projections, protensions, movement into the future. Husserl pointed this out about the experience of temporality. The thing that distinguishes us from rocks, paper, pens, is that we are temporal beings. We experience temporality, and that temporality is always a movement into the future. So, in fact, to say that in psychoanalysis we are only interested in past and present is to truncate the very experience of temporality that is so fundamental to human experiencing. So, when we see a patient, I see a patient. And this person, you know, you ask them what they do and about them and about their backgrounds and their histories, and they tell us about that. I am always listening for who they expect to be, not just if they're a young person in 18, 19, 20, but if they're 75, I want to know that too. Okay? Why not? Everybody has a sense of where they are going in life. And one way, one very important way, I think, of looking at symptoms and and psychopathology is that it is all a product of something that is a protension, a movement into the future that got blocked and derailed in in some way, right? I mean, we talk about developmental arrest. What are we talking about? We're talking about somebody whose development, whose sense of self has somehow been arrested or interfered with. But what does that mean? It means that there is some movement into the future that did not occur. Okay, so in a sense, all symptoms reflect a stasis in temporality. Okay, it 
there is a frozenness of the temporal in every symptom. We're stuck there. That's why we look back to the past. And looking back to the past is fine because you look back to the past to see, well, what got stuck? But what got stuck is something that was a movement into the future. Okay? So the the temporal is always a fluidity among future, present, and past. You can't eliminate one without eliminating the whole experience of temporality, okay? And what it is really difficult, I think, especially for American analysts with a positivist background to understand, is that who someone is, is always and also who they are not, okay? You You cannot understand somebody unless you understand who they are not, okay? I have always... I love music. If I have a first love, if I love anything more than psychoanalysis, it's music, okay? But I could not become a musician because I have no talent in it, okay? So there is a sense in which if you want to understand me, you have to understand that I am not a musician, okay? I wish I could be, but I can't be, okay? And we all have something like that, maybe not quite as fundamental as I have it about music, but we all have things like that. I mean, how many patients do we have who have always wanted to get married and have children, right? But they don't, for whatever the reason is, okay? So not being married, not having children, is fundamental to who that person is, okay? That is a future that has never happened, right? So you can't understand people without understanding what their sense of the future is for them. And I have in the book this one case of this woman where we never really got to the sense of what was really wrong and troubling her until we understood that she was unconsciously projecting a future that was going to be horribly depressing in her mind, Mm -hmm. okay? So there is such a thing as the unconscious future, okay? I have a patient right now, a new one, okay, who is married, but who has had, had, which is now conscious, but it was unconscious, this feeling that her marriage is going to end. And a lot of her depression is about this future that has not happened, but she fears that it will. And without understanding her potential into the future, we could not possibly understand her depression. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure. Does that understand your... Yeah, no, I, I mean, there, there's, uh, as you see, there's so, there's so much to, um, to say about it. I have a... I guess I wanted to ask you um, in uh, sort of the facilitating the creation of what has never been. I think that's another quote in the book. Um, yes. You know, there's, there's a way in which, right, patients look at the past and they get to know why, and it's a form of torture event, uh, eventually, right? <laughs> because they, they watch themselves repeat themselves, here I go, here I go, here I go, here I go again, you know. Um, it's almost like, you know, they, they end up feeling worse. Now, my sense is, uh, in the clinical examples you give throughout the book, that when um, you're thinking about the future, um, it has implications for technique, what it is that we do technically. Um, you talk about something, uh, write about something called the uh, evocative interpretation. I want you to give us a sense. I'm always interested in technique. That's my, my thing. Mm-hmm. And I, what Can you talk to us about in, the evocative interpretation, the thing that actually my sense is produces a new feeling in the patient. So the patient has, has, uh, you know, it hasn't, has actually a new experience. I mean, a new feeling is a new experience. I would say, can you? Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so really, um, two questions as I see it. Mm. Okay. And I'm happy to, to answer both of them. Um, the evocative is related to the future and to technique. Um, but, You also pointed out that my sense of the future is an important part of my technique, and it is. I believe that in psychoanalysis, we have looked too exclusively, not just at the past, but at past and present, okay? And how many times do we have patients say to us, "Uh, oh, doctor, I understand that, but I don't know how to change it. Like you say, it's a form of torture. For the patient to keep going through, see themselves repeating it over and over. But what good does it do me? I can't change it. I don't know how to change it. Right. And see, I think that's at that point perhaps where my technique is most different from other people. 
Okay, because at that point, if they really have understood it and understand it in the transference, and it's not just a defensive intellectualization, but they're an, an actual coming to grips with something critically important in themselves, right. and they see themselves repeating it and cannot change it, I think there's a reason why they can't change it. They can't change it because it's a developmental arrest. And what that means is that they're trying to do something they have never before done. One of my very favorite quotes, uh, as you, I think, alluded to, is from Bobby Kennedy, who said, I, I, I sort of fo follow my clinical technique by Bobby Kennedy, who said, other people look at what is and ask why, I look at what has never been and ask why not. I look at what has never been, I look at both, and I look at what has never been and ask why not. So when a patient gets to that point, mm -hmm. I am not in distress at all. I think that is a positive, that is a movement forward, okay, mm -hmm. because they get to the point of the frustration of the repetition. But now what you have to do is you have to open the space. And by opening the space, I mean giving the opportunity for the patient to associate, to play, to experiment, to do whatever they're going to do, okay, within the context of, okay, we know you're repeating this. You always have to please everyone. You're trying to please me. You don't know how to get out of it, okay? What comes to mind, okay? What, in other words, what other possibilities might there be within this person, okay? And if we don't believe there are other possibilities, what are we doing there, right? Isn't that the whole point of analysis, that people can, uh, can discover other possibilities, ways of being that they have never had before? But I think the space has to be open, mm -hmm. okay, for the patient to write a new script for themselves on it, if you like, mm -hmm. okay? And so they will often become confused and say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm you know, confused. I used to think I knew myself. Now I know myself better, but um, I don't know what to do with it. But you see, what I want then is for them to say, okay, I don't know how to relate to people any differently, but what comes to their mind? What associations do they have? And what I'm trying to do is to bring out fledgling possibilities in them. Okay. Mm -hmm. I look for indications at that point not of something that will tell me about their past. We've done that, okay? We've done the past. We've repeated it in the present. What I'm looking for is what might become a future possibility for them. Mm -hmm. If they get frustrated and angry at that situation, that might become the kernel of a new possibility in which ambition then becomes a part of themselves, which they have never owned before. They've never had because it got arrested early in life. What I'm looking for is a way, a concrete, clinical, technical way of taking what has been arrested and helping the patient develop it into something that it has never been. Self-realization, if you like. If you believe in developmental arrest, then you must believe that there are parts of the person that have not been developed. Well, is it not then our responsibility to help the patient develop that? And that, of course, means the future. It means bringing out those possibilities into some future way of being that they have never before engaged in, okay? And that's where the analytic spaces, the openness that Winnicott talked about, can become a play space for the person. And play space in the Winnicottian sense, meaning a space that is protected by a certain structure, but open to being whatever the patient may decide to try to create it to be, okay? Just like children when they play. They play with blocks. It's a fire engine. It's a house. It's whatever. They're playing with these elements of themselves mm -hmm. and seeing what they can then construct from that. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's, that's about, um, I think, the, the technical part of trying to help people construct new ways of being and relating. Mm -hmm. With regard to the evocative, okay, what I mean by evocative is this. What I mean is there is a way of interpreting to a person that says this is who you are or this is the truth about you or about this particular event, yeah. okay? And you might even be right about it. But when you say, well, the reason you comply with everyone is because you're afraid of your aggression, you present it as a truth right. given to the patient, and the patient's role can only be then either to take it in if they agree with you, accept it, comply with you, they may not even agree with you, but feel they have to comply because you're the doctor, which often happens, right? Or disagree if they disagree. But in any case, it's a truth conveyed as a whole 
that they either accept or they don't. And I think that puts the patient in too passive a position. Okay? So rather than saying, this is how, this is the truth about you, I would say to the patient, it seems to me that you have indicated a fear of being aggressive toward me, as though that would do me some danger. Okay? Or, Or any possibility. You can think of a million different ones. Okay? But it seems to me that this is what is occurring to you that leads you to do this with me um, as a way of saying, this is my experience of you. This is the impression I have. It is an offering for the patient to then respond to as they will. Winnicott once said, interpretations are offerings to the patient. They might take it in and gobble it up. They might spit it out. They might um, take part of it, reject another part of it. But you want the patient, I do, I want the patient to create something from it. I'm very happy when I suggest something to a patient and they say, oh, it's not quite that way. It's like this because I know they're responding from their own experience. Okay, They're creating something from what I give them. And so they may come up with something that's very different from what I had in mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that's fine as long as they are creating it from an authentic spot of their own, from a spontaneous, authentic expression of who they are, that they will take it in as, insofar as it fits with their experience and reject it if it doesn't fit with their experience. So by evocative as opposed to declarative, right. I mean to try to evoke something, to try to stimulate something in the patient. I'll say, it seems to me there was something there that seemed very aggressive or very angry, okay? And I'll say that to the patient to say, is this the case or not? It seemed to me there was something there that seemed angry to me, okay? Evoking, hopefully, something in the patient. Now, they may say, no, you're wrong. I wasn't angry about that. I really just wanted to tell you this, and I don't think you're getting it, okay? And so whatever it is, I don't care, as long as it comes from the patient and they are making something from what I offer, okay? So I much prefer to try to prefer to try to evoke something because I think that has the best possibility of creating something that has never been. Yeah, that I mean that's that's exciting um what what you're talking about. It's really uh, exciting clinical work. You you argue in the book, I mean about the ways in which psychoanalysis has uh as a, you know, a profession, a technique, a you know, mode of thought, whatever you want to call it, it's been complicit in certain forms of reification. For instance, the declarative interpretation strikes me as uh, reifying. Um, and you also have a critique, it's funny, in the ways in which psychoanalysis is embedded and complicit. Psychoanalysis in this book is both uh, renegade and um, kind of a, con- conserv- it can also be a very conservative force. Um, ways in which analysts uh, do uh, do reify and um, you ha- there's a quote that um, from you that uh, is as follows: When the self is conceived as a property with measurable quantitative worth, it is reified, much like real estate. Um, you suggest that there's uh, some ideas that have gained traction in psychoanalysis that promote reification. Could you elaborate uh, and tell us more about of this? Yeah. Of course. Um- yeah, and, and I like the point you made about both renegade and reification is very conservative, because I think both are true in, yes. in psychoanalysis. Um, uh, oh, you're asking much more about the reification than the renegade, but I do want to get to that well, part I also. Have, I have questions about the renegade. Okay. Um, I think psychoanalysis as a process, if done as I think many people do it, what I would consider the proper way, not that there's a proper technique, but proper way in the sense of engaging the patient's experience with a minimum of imposing on that experience, but trying to elucidate and elaborate experience and help the patient create something new. If practiced in that way, it is not a reification. It is a recognition that psychoanalysis is about experiencing. It's about the experiencing subject, and it is not about an entity, okay, that can be measured or quantified or objectified. Okay, any objectification of the self of human experience to me is anti-psychoanalytic. Now, ironically, in psychoanalytic theory, there is a great deal of reification. Okay, 
which I think is contrary to the process. And I think that's one of the reasons for some of the debates we have in psychoanalysis is that there is on the one hand our absolute contention commitment to the experience of the patient. It's all in the patient's experience. Every supervisor I ever had when I was in my training said, well, the way you tell is with the patient's experience. You give it a try and see. If the patient can't experience it, you're either wrong or you're ill-timed, right? So it's always the, the arbiters, the patient's experience. Yet we want to have this body of laws, okay, or regulations that stand as a kind of reification. And consequently, we reify many of our concepts. The self can be easily reified, okay? But I want to pick out one that I think is particularly controversial. And I've had, of course, many of... Um, Drum roll, please. It's a good one. Okay. Yes. My guess is correct. All right. Let's see. The unconscious, yes. okay? Mm-hmm. The unconscious, I oppose because it is a reification, okay? And people get very upset with this. Are you saying there is no unconscious? Of course I'm not saying that. There are unconscious psychic phenomena. But if you read closely Freud's paper on the unconscious, he has very good a very good argument for the fact of unconscious psychic phenomena, unconscious motives and meanings, okay? But no argument for turning that into a system, UCS, which is what reified it into the unconscious. Unconscious is not a noun, okay? To say unconscious is a noun, to say there is a system UCS, is to say that there is an entity that is connected by virtue of the topographic level, that things that are unconscious are connected into a system because they're all unconscious. But that is not the case, okay? Human experiencing is not organized by topographic level. It's organized by systems of meaning. So, and we see this every day in our practices. When you explore something with a patient and it turns out they have some unconscious meaning or motive, uh, for example, that they find out that they had always repressed their anger, they'd always idealized the father, hated their mother, and realized they had repressed a certain amount of love for the mother and anger toward the father. You find that out, okay? You have gone from free associations that were conscious to free to associations that were not conscious, to unconscious phenomena. And you went through that string, and what connected that concatenation was meaning, Mm -hmm. and it crossed topographic level, right? Now, okay, let's say you have that dynamic of anger at the father that you never knew you had that was unconscious, and you have another dynamic about engulfment by your mother that is also unconscious. Those two things are not connected because they are both unconscious, okay? Mm -hmm. They are separate. What is connected with the anger of, at the father was the idealization, which was a defense, which was conscious, and that is connected to the unconscious level. So our mind is organized around systems of meaning, not topographic level. So there is no argument for making unconscious a noun. That is a reification. And I think, and that's one of the many reifications in psychoanalysis, a lot of theory is reified. And the problem with that is it takes one of the few bastions of human subjectivity, i.e. psychoanalysis, and tries to turn it in to another reified form of objectifying the human experience, which is exactly what psychoanalysis is not, and which brings me to the idea of the psychoanalyst as the rebel. As you point out, I connect um, the psychoanalyst in today's world with Camus' concept of the rebel. You know, the rebel is somebody who refuses to be determined by historical circumstance. The historical circumstances of our time are to quantify, objectify, and make material, commodify everything, everything we can do, okay? And all things have pretty much been done to in that way, and one would think that psychology would be the last bastion where there would not be that kind of materialism because we're talking about the human psyche. But, of course, we find exactly the opposite. In academic psychology, they have completely bought in to the mythology of our culture, which is that everything can be quantified, objectified, and made material. The famous quote, of course, is the quote of A.L. Thorndike, who said, if it exists, it can be measured, which is total nonsense, completely absurd, and self-contradictory, 
and yet every psychology textbook starts out with that. Okay? That is the culture of our time. The psychoanalyst, if he operates as an analyst, is immersing himself in human subjectivity and refusing to objectify human experience. And that makes the analyst the rebel. He's one of the few rebels of our time who is promoting and championing human subjectivity. And there are very few areas like that in the world. Right. Right. I mean, I'm thinking of, um, uh, it's, it's interesting in your, in your book, you, uh, there's a chapter, I, I'm not sure which one in which you seem to be arguing, um, with uh, per- perhaps maybe a little bit defensively with the idea that if we privilege subjectivity, um, we will be giving in to um, Christopher Lash's critique of the culture of narcissism. Um, so the book pays uh, homage uh, to the thinking of Jessica Benjamin, uh, very much so, I think. Um, and um, you argue that by privileging experience and subjectivity, psychoanalysts are not promoting, in fact, a culture of narcissism. There is a strong um, argument about ethics made in your book. Um, yes. Self-realization is not licentious as it's based upon needing recognition. We need to value the other because we need to be seen as valued by the other. So this way of thinking about psychoanalytic process and product um, upends older notions of psychoanalytic ethics as being rooted um, in uh, evaluation of, I think, the superego. Is that, am I, under- am I understanding yes. you? You're totally correct. Okay, so, so I have a question, if I can find it amongst my many questions here. Oh, here we go. So, so I was thinking about this idea of mutuality and mutual recognition, um, you know, with this more of a two-person model, I think, in which, you know, you're, you're describing um, the need to be seen by a subject, a subjectivized other who we value, who values us, which I don't disagree with. Um, you write, uh, and this is a quote, psychoanalysis assumes a lonely stance as a beacon of opposition to the objectivist culture and the manic society it produces. Inherent in the analytic worldview is the belief is the belief in and search for meaning and empathic recognition of the other as a subject on which self-development relies. So for myself, as an adherent of the drives who is interested in the ways in which we seek tension reduction, less so than object relating, with statements like the one I just quoted, you really have me nevertheless at hello. I'm, I'm with you. I want to oppose the ways in which the culture turns people into products, too. Um... However, I, is there something, um, is there something that you think of as inherently um, conservative, perhaps, in analytic work that does not focus on mutual recognition, or rather, that focuses on the drives? I mean, like, in, in my analytic training as a modern analyst, I, I, you know, people bandy about a phrase, who were you before you met your mother? Mm-hmm. I think it's a very radical phrase because it's like, mm-hmm. who, who were you before the culture, uh, you know, or this, the social, the sociality um, mm-hmm. hit mm-hmm. you? I mean, can, can, could a different, um, uh, it's not really a meta, well, could a different so, sort of metapsychology or ethos um, produce the same, um, could, could you, could we look at drives um, within this model and, uh, I don't, I don't know yeah. where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think we almost have to look at drives within this model. Um, you know, it's a complicated thing about, about drives. You know, where does one put them? You know, that, you know, when I talk to drive people, they always say, well, are you saying there are no drives? And of course there are drives. I'm just saying that drives aren't the sole source, not even the major source of human motivation. But, of course, we all have drives. You can't live without drives. You have the drive drives for- are not ethical. Mutual yeah. recognition has there's an there's an ethics there, right? That right. Benjamin is Absolutely. drawing upon. Yeah. All right. So let me talk about that. See, I look at psychoanalysis. One of the things about the book that maybe some people think is idealistic is that I believe that psychoanalysis, in its contemporary form, is a foundation for modern ethics. Not just ethics and psychoanalysis, but for that for the ethics of society. There is an answer to the question of why be a good person in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And the answer, I think, was um, adumbrated or originated with Jessica Benjamin, as you pointed out, which is, and, and you quoted it, Tracy, that um, one can, if self-realization is what it's about, which I believe it is, you know, as Nietzsche once said, we all must simply become who we are, um, you, 
that only happens in the context of an other seen as a subject. The other has to eventually be seen as a subject for their gaze of recognition to bring out our subjectivity, right? So that's why self-realization is not a a private um, um, Christopher Lash, you know, and self-indulgence. It's not a narcissism. People make this mistake all the time. They equate self with narcissism. They're two different things, okay? Self-realization comes from and can only happen in the context of being seen as, as an, by another who is seen as a subject, which means the recognition of others as subjectivities in their own right is built into the notion of becoming a person. And people who do not see others as subjects in their own right, who objectify others, okay, as by splitting, for example, which is so common, and we see all around us everywhere, are people whose self-development has been derailed in some way, okay? The self has been arrested in some way because there is no gaze of recognition by another subject, so then you're going to try to get what you can get, when you can get it in whatever way, and that becomes pathology. And this is one place where I agree with Kohat. I'm not a self-psychologist, but one thing Kohat said is where you see the pure pleasure principle is it's in a breakdown practice where the self is broken down. That's where you see people who are only interested in tension discharge, right? That's a pathological product. It's not the state of the human condition, okay? So um, there is in psychoanalysis today, I think, inherently an ethic. And the reason that everyone should be good and ethical is that that is the way you grow as a person. It's built into your growth as a person. And where people are not do not see others, where they objectify or commodify others, that is intimately connected with a self-arrest. It's something in the self that is not developed. Now, does that answer your question, or were you you were looking for something? No, no. I mean, I just I just wanted to, to pose it because I think that you know, I I don't disagree with the importance of mutual recognition. I don't mm-hmm. don't at all. But I was thinking more about the idea that of psychoanalysis as outlier, as kind of uh, you know, sort of having an inherent critique of the current. Uh, you know, objectification and commodification of of the self, of you know, of, of what it means to be human, um, in in its practically in its entirety. I mean, really, at, at this point, that that's the feeling, anyway. And so, but I, you know, I think about um, that that we run the risk uh, with mutual recognition and um, the privileging of the two person model. One of the my concerns is always. Uh, do we reproduce what already is um, in in the in the culture? And I wonder about the. Ex- I, it, what do you mean? I'm I'm, think, I'm thinking about the way about some, something being domesticated, um, or yeah, domesticated, like in really like like re domestic. Um, uh, at home, um, here we go again. This is what we are, this is what we already know. It's not necessarily new. It's a domestic product, rather than what maybe um, when we look at something like the drives, which are less social, mm-hmm. also come up with um, um, thoughts, ideas, experiences, feelings that are outside of the dominant social order. I mean, I think you know you're, we're trying to work the tension between. At, Right there's there's the old adaptation, you know. Psychoanalysis yeah. helps us to adapt, and yeah. you're certainly talking about psychoanalysis as opening up, as you say, the the never before experienced. Right. Um, I, I what and I I think about drives as being important in getting to the never before experienced, and I and I see the the work on mutual recognition as, um. I get I, domestic is the only word that comes to mind. I don't yeah, know yeah. See, I don't really think it is domestic. Um, I, I see how you would see it that way, but um, first of all, you have to understand. I have my own brand. I don't want to be tight here. You know, as fitting into even though Jessica Benjamin, I think, is the most brilliant of contemporary psychoanalytic uh, theorists. Um, that doesn't mean that I necessarily buy whole hog the whole relational model in many respects. No, I, I, but I do, some I don't. I think yeah. that's, that's clear. All right, but you see, to, to get directly to your question, the, um, 
The reason I would say it's not domesticated is because I think what is domesticated is objectification of the human experience. Yeah. That is that is what is domestic. That is how we're supposed to be. We are all commodities. Mm-hmm. If you look at the dominant culture, everything about us. What is this person worth? Oh, this person's worth a million, ten million, twenty million. That's what they're worth. That's who they are. Right. Okay, you're defined that way. We define happiness by the domestic product, the most gross domestic product. Okay? We don't define it in any other way. The success of a business is its profit. It's got nothing to do with the quality of what it's doing, the creativity, what it's contributing to society. It has nothing to do with its success. It's the profit. So the point is that that is what is domestic. Okay? And I think what's radical about psychoanalysis is the complete focus on human sub- the human subject and subjective experience. Now, you may want to bring the drives into that, and that's okay with me, but you know, the idea that we are these um, undomesticated beings first mm-hmm. doesn't really fit, I don't think, with, and that's where we might fundamentally disagree. Right. You look at developmental research, um, it just doesn't fit with that notion. Um, the, the child is born with an inherent uh, need, tendency, um, and, and it's built in to look at others and to respond to others and to form relationships, rules, world govern behavior with others right from the beginning. I mean, that is built into the human experience. Right. Okay? And the child looks to the other, looks to the gaze of the other, responds to it. That's, that's not an animal, you know? Right. It's not a, you know, so, so I, I can't agree with I'm, that I mean, concept. I'm romantic about the drives. Okay, fine. <laughs> to, some, to some degree. Fine. I mean, I... I, now, I say, we, what I would say is that if there is a fundamental human drive, it is the drive to be oneself, okay? And that includes, that's a broad concept. That includes everything. That includes the drives, the need for others. It includes love. It includes anger. It includes ambition. It includes everything you can think of as human, okay? For certain people, certain parts of that are more important than for others. Right. But we all have that need to become ourselves, mm-hmm. okay? We all have capacities, and that can have a lot to do with the drive. certainly has a lot to do with sex, for sure, okay? Right. And, and a lot of other things. So that's where we might find a, a, a overlap in our ideas about sure. this. Mm-hmm. But I think it's about realization of the self. That's really the human project. Mm-hmm. I think we're ultimately happy to the degree that our, we are in the process always of being ourselves, becoming ourselves. You know, one of my other real favorite quotes is by um, uh, by Yeats. Uh, you know, the poet Yeats who said, um, "Happiness is not uh, wealth. It's not property. It's not even virtue. It's no particular thing. We're happy when we're growing." You know, beautiful. Uh, and, and, you know, it's like Bob Dylan. You know, who is who is not busy, born is busy dying. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. the continual growth, the continual movement. Right. I think it's really what, may, and happiness. I think is a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you're, you folk. I mean, the focus in the book is on something very processual. Um, you right. know that that's which is, you know, I mean, I, I, I love that. And um, I wanted to give you a couple of quotes actually that aren't from your book, and something oh. that uh, as you're, you're giving your that aren't your quotes, but that really came to my mind um, okay. as I was was reading the book. Um, and I'll, I'll read you three, and I'll tell you then who they're from, or perhaps you know. It's not, not for you to guess, but um, here we go. Our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we know we could be. Next quote. Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Mm, you're getting warmer. Yeah, you know who this is. <laughs> what lies behind you and what lies in front of you pales in comparison to what lies inside of you. When I read this book, um, I thought immediately of Emerson, Ralph Waldo right. Emerson, um, right. so much so. And I went to the back to the Bible. I said, he's not quoting Emerson, Husserl, Heidegger. I said, this is the most Emersonian book of psychoanalysis I have, um, you know, yet, yet to an encounter. Um, yeah. and, and you're critiquing, you know, you're, you're from... Okay, here I am. I'm in New York. You're like in Chicago. I think you're from the Midwest, not just living in Chicago. If I can, right. if I hear your right. your accent, um, although Emerson was was an East Coast guy, but but there's a certain way uh, that this book and its emphasis in the future and its its hopefulness um, 
makes it a very, I think, a uniquely American book of psychoanalytic thinking. Um, and I and I think it, in, in, in the, the best way, um, it's it's emblematic of something that is really deeply American, um, you know, yeah. just yeah. just in in of itself. And so I wanted to to give you. Um, those those quotes because this is a book for the readers. Um, when you, when you get the book, you're going to be in for a treat. Which the last I think three or four chapters are a critique of the culture. So this is not just a book for people who are clinicians, although it will satisfy the clinician. I mean, there's no doubt. But this is also a book for people who are interested in the interface between um, psychoanalysis and let's say um, sociology, um, you know, cultural theory. Uh, from and I think that Frank does a, a bang up job um, in turning the clinic the the psychoanalyst gaze onto the culture uh, at large, much as much as as Emerson did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, you're, you're completely right. I mean, my purpose in writing this book was to make it a book for clinicians, but also for cognate fields. Yes. I don't know how successful I'm being in that, but I was hoping to connect psychoanalysis with philosophy, with sociology, with anthropology, with anybody or any field that is studying the culture in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think psychoanalysis has a lot to offer those fields and vice versa. Yeah. And I think it is really important that we have something to contribute to the understanding of human culture. And so I'm trying to um, hopefully bridge this chasm between psychoanalysis and, and cognate disciplines. So you're totally accurate there. Uh, with regard to Emerson, um, you know, <laughs> I, t- I took out some Emerson and started reading him. And, um, you know, I-, I think the reason you don't see Emerson quoted there is because, you know, it's, it's again, it's my philosophical background. You know, I'm steeped in Husserl and Heidegger and the continental European uh, philosophers, I never, nobody ever read Emerson in my philosophy classes. You know, he just wasn't part of that. If I considered a philosopher's philosopher, even though he really is, but you're totally right. Transcendentalism. I mean, and this is a book that embraces the notion of transcendence, which I know has comes from different traditions, but you're so inside an American, uh, the the project of the book is really the critique is of American culture. Yes, absolutely. Yes, no, it's very American. You're totally right. Yeah, and you're I'm sure most Europeans will consider me to be a naive idealist, and I've been accused of that. Well, uh, and that's fine. But it's it's very American in its kind of Emersonian kind of um, optimism and quality of human experiencing and the notion of what human experience is. And I probably should have had more uh, Emerson and maybe even Thoreau uh, in there. Um, but, um, you know, the whole gang, right? They're, they're, yeah, but, yeah, but you, know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a product of my education, sure. you know, and the, the, no one ever mentioned Emerson once in any of my philosophy classes. You know, it's always yeah. European people, right. uh, but but Emerson, you know, I read a great deal of Emerson, you know, and uh, he is totally a kindred spirit. There's no question about that. His view of the human experience is so much like mine. Yes, I mean, I I just was brought back to Emerson, and I said there must be Emerson here, and I went back and I was like reading Emerson. And I said, you know, Frank really is is uh, is deeply Emersonian, and I I think Emerson is is terrific and um you know i, I love emerson i my background is in american history um oh, okay. uh, yeah ni- you know late 19th early 20th century stuff um so so he did come to mind so i mean that as a as a really a deep uh, a deep compliment um to claim, well, thank you. To claim thank you. You, know, you you in line with you in line with emerson is a is a, is a it's it's a wonderful in fact to see it as a trajectory as a you know a, a sort of a, a developmental line um <laughs> I, yeah. think, I like it. Um, you know, we're we're over time, and I guess, um, which is fine. Uh, but I guess we have to say goodbye. Um, I want to thank you very much for um, being with us. Uh, it, I mean, really, you um, you gave us a lot. I think you've given people a lot to uh, to think about. And you just have to let us know when you publish your next book. So. <laughs> Can I just say something here, sure. Tracy? I am so impressed with how carefully you read this book. You really got it. 
You really did. I don't think I've talked to anybody who's understood this book and grappled with its ideas in the way you have. And I'm so appreciative of that. Wow. Thank you so much. That's, it's a, I'm, that's, that's um, the really wonderful flattery. And I, I did, you know, I, it was easy to engage with. Um, the book for me was really easy. Um, it was, it was, it was challenging and digest. It was digestible and then a little challenging and then digestible, a little challenging. You know, I took it and, and I, I enjoyed it very much. So, um, and I think that I hope that you get the readership that you want broader than the psychoanalytic readership. Um, and we, sometimes we cross, we cross posts on, um, in the new books network. So let's, let me see, um, if we can think about where we might do a little cross posting. Cause I think it, it would be, uh, a good thing to do. So That'd be wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank yeah. you again, Tracy. Sure, and thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. And this is Tracy Morgan, your um, hostess of uh, New Books and Psychoanalysis, uh, signing off. I know it's been a long time. I've missed everybody, um, but I'm back. And uh, thank you again, Frank Summers, for being with us. Thank you.